Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteousness and justice from that time on and forever. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we praise you. We thank you that you are the wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace. Lord, we thank you that you are there in the dark places, in the chaos and in the pain and in the grief, Lord, that we see around us and in us. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us and that you are always listening and always present. We praise you and we seek your peace this morning for those parts in our lives that hurt so much and the parts of our world that we see that are in such pain. We bring them before you. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. Well, good morning again. We are in the second week of Advent. Today we are thinking about peace. And I, I venture to guess that we have a few people in this room that would welcome more peace in your life. Am I right? This is something that we can identify with. We want, we want peace in our life. And when we think about that, we might think of it in terms of a of an inner peace, uh, that, uh, that peace that is in our hearts and making us feel calm when other things swirl around us. I bet some of you are also longing for peace in the world where there is violence, where there is war. And I bet also there are even times and places in your life and in your world 
in which it seems calm on the surface, but there's deep-rooted animosity or separation or cut-off relationships that might appear peaceful, but under the surface they aren't, and there's pain there. And I bet you long for healing and restoration. This is the topic for today, and in the words we have from the prophet Isaiah, which uh, Joy just read, uh, we have a longing for peace. Now, these words were written a long time ago, and I want to try to set them in context for you. Um, if you uh, look at the timeline of the Bible, imagine the timeline of the Bible kind of from, from your left uh, to right. Uh, we have over here uh, Genesis. There is the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, and then the fall, and kind of 1 through 11 kind of continues the fall of humanity. And then Genesis 12 begins the rescue plan. That is how, okay, the, the world has fallen, people have messed up. Genesis 12, the calling of Abraham and Sarah begins the rescue plan. And the rest of Genesis, he's building this family the, of the patriarchs, and then they eventually they go to Egypt. And then we have the story. They, now the people, they've become a nation. They, they've, they've flourished. The, you know, hundreds of years have gone by, but they've been enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptians. And then there's a the story in Exodus of God sends Moses, and he rescues the people out of a state of complete unpeace uh, when they are enslaved and they are abused and taken advantage of. And he leads them out of that. And then you have this period of wandering in the desert. And you have the books of the rest of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in which the law has been giving and kind of teaching the people the way of righteousness, the way of peace, how they're supposed to treat one another as they're in the wilderness. And then you have the book of Joshua, in which they actually are led into the promised land. They're given, they, they take the land, you see in Joshua and Judges, the, the, the different uh, tribes, which are the descendants of, uh, of the, the 12 sons of Israel, are given different tribal allotments, uh, different places there. And, and, the, and the vision under the, the, the period of the Judges, and the original vision for the people of Israel in the land was for God to be their king. Okay, the other peoples were ruled by human kings, but they would have God as their kings, and so the various rulers were just called judges that would rove around and kind of represent God in administering justice. But the people said, no, 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 we want a, we want a human king. And they demanded that of God, and God gave them as a concession uh, Saul, the king. And they said, but I'm gonna warn you, uh, the prophets uh, warned them, said, hey, you know, kings, they, they, they get out of line. They, 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 like, they like taxes. Uh, they, they, they'll oppress you. Um, and they, well, we want a king anyway because we want a, a king to lead us to fight the other kingdoms. And, and so eventually they, they had a land, and there was David, and there was Solomon, and there was a little bit of happy times in there. But then for the most part, after that, uh, there was a whole line of terrible kings. Every once in a while they'd have a, a diamond in the rough, but most of the kings after that were, were bad and led the people into idolatry and injustice and there was a lot of pain and suffering because of it. And in particular there became rivalry among the rulers and there was a split. There was a civil war in the history of Israel in which the ten northern tribes broke off and became 
what was referred to as Ephraim, or sometimes just referred to as Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. That's uh, two, kingdom, two tribes in the south became Judah and continued to be ruled from Jerusalem. Okay, so then there's, for most of the history of the monarchy, there were these two separate kingdoms. In the year 722 BC, remember BC counts down, 722, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom. And they carted off a lot of uh, uh, leading citizens off into exile in Assyria. And there was a period of time in which the southern kingdom of Judah endured until 586. Okay, Sam, are you getting this? Are you, are you tracking it all? I'm going to quiz you after the service, okay? 722, 586, Assyria, then Babylon. Okay. Now, in this period of time, in between the 722 conquest of the northern kingdom, soon after that, around 700, but before Judah has fallen, Isaiah and those early, particularly those first 39 chapters of, of, uh, of Isaiah are thought to have been written right sort of after the fall of the northern kingdom, before the southern kingdom. It's a period of pain, right? It's a period of, uh, there's been this uh, jealous rivalry between the two kingdoms. There's this devastation of the northern kingdom's conquest and foreigners kind of coming into that land. And there's this longing for peace, for restoration, you know, for brothers to, to be not at arms against one another, but to be united, for, 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 for safety from foreign invaders, for justice to reign the land, for, for people to be, to be united. And it's a, it's a hope. Remember how DJ was teaching us last week about how you see in the Bible people look backwards towards the past action of God drawing on drawing for, on hope for God's future action, fulfillment of promises. So this is a moment in time in which the people of God are looking backward. Remember that time when God rescued us out from under the oppressive rule of Egypt? Remember that time that he guarded us in the wilderness? Remember that time that he, that he uh, uh, protected us as we first came into the promised land? Oh, we long for that to happen again. We long for God to be king again. And so we see these words come uh, to Isaiah in which he's longing and predicting by word of God that one day there would be born a king who would rule and reestablish the kingship or the kingdom of God. Now, what do you think happened? I bet some of you are in your seats saying, Matt, don't leave us in suspense. What happened? Did Isaiah's prophecy ever come true? Was the kingdom of God ever established? What, did, did, uh, what, what happened? Well, if you want to know the answer, you've got to come back on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and then, and then, don't stop at Christmas Eve. Come back in January. Because we're going to actually do a series from Christmas all the way until Easter that studies the theme of the kingdom of God. This is the number one thing that Jesus speaks about in the Gospels. The number one thing, more than anything else, he speaks about the kingdom of God. It was the centerpiece of all of his teaching. It was the centerpiece of his action. It was the thing that the signs, which are the miracles, pointed towards is the kingdom of God. And so I want to encourage you to join us between January, uh, between January, kind of mid-January and Easter, 
uh, to study the kingdom of God and the fulf- really the true fulfillment uh, and even the beginning of a greater fulfillment to what we're even looking at now in this story of Isaiah written 2,700 years ago. And we're going to have a lot of uh, life group materials. I hope your life groups uh, uh, will, will do this together. Uh, we're going to be starting new life groups. So if you're not part of like a small gathering of people to study the word together, we're going to be starting a bunch of new life groups, and you can you can join and, and just kind of try it out for those 12, 13 weeks. Um, but I think it's going to be a great time. At the beginning of what Joy read, uh, Isaiah nine verse one, it says this: Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, I think a lot of people read through this and without kind of, in kind of a historical lens, uh, glaze right past that. How many of you were moved in your spirit when you heard the words Zebulun and Naphtali? Anybody? Okay, but it would have been extremely moving to the people at the time. Because remember in 722, as you recall, Sam, you got that? 722? I think so. Okay, absolutely. 722, before Isaiah wrote those words, Assyria came in and conquered that northern kingdom. And they came in from the northeast. And where did they come through? Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali are these tribes up in the north. They were the northernmost uh, tribes up there. And they were conquered and humiliated by the Assyrian army that desecrated their sacred things and took uh, many of their leading citizens away. Now, another thing that you might not know is that the exact same land came to be known by another name, uh, particularly in the New Testament. It was this rural countryside, rocky countryside that kind of borders particularly the western side of a lake. Anybody want to take a guess what it's called? Galilee. So everything that we see in the New Testament which refers to Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, all of that is the same land. That's actually part of Naphtali bordering Zebulun. And so in the same land that was absolutely the same exact place that suffers this horrific defeat that Isaiah is talking about, all oh, the, the, the humiliation of that, one day it will be honored in that same place. And of course, that is where Jesus spends the bulk of his ministry and so many of the miracles. It's, it's the honor of the king is gonna come to this humbled place of Galilee. I don't, I don't know, I have a random memory that comes to my mind as I think about this. Um, when I was a kid, I competed in spelling bees, Okay. And I did pretty well uh, at my school, and I got chosen to represent my school at the district spelling bee. My parents are in the crowd watching, and, and uh, you know, suddenly there's like a lot of pressure. There's all these like, it's not, you're no longer in the school library. Now you're like up, and there's like all these people, and I'm nervous. And I remember, I don't know what age I was, uh, but I got the word precious, okay? And I spelled it P-R-E, and then I froze. Then I froze, right? And I was like, oh, no. Everyone's looking at me, crickets. And I said, (laughs) P-R-E-S-H. 
you ass. I knew it was wrong. We're like, that's incorrect, eh. And then there's like the walk of shame where you're like, all right, I'm eliminated. <laughs> you go sit down, you know? And uh, so, so that happened to me. And then later I'm like, I know that word. Oh, I just kept saying to myself, precious, precious. I sounded like Gollum, okay? <laughs> At night, I'd be like, precious, precious. I know precious, ah. I just beat myself up saying, precious, precious. How did I miss precious? Just like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, okay? Like, I don't know how long it lasted, but it was like, and I just remember talking to my mom. I don't know how I blew that. Oh my gosh, I know, you know. And then uh, the next spelling bee comes along the next year. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna study harder this, this year, you know? Uh, and and my, this time, not just my parents, but my grandparents were present watching me. And we're going through words, and then, I, I, I still can't believe this happened. They call me up, and they give me the word, precious. <laughs> I got the same word that knocked me out the year before. But I, do you think I missed it again? I did not. I had obsessed over it for a year. I talked to my mom. And I, P-R, and I looked at my mom, and she looked at me, and I just smiled. And I said, C, <laughs> instead of S, right? I'm too nervous to spell the rest of the word in front of you right now. But it was this great, it was this great mo- I-O-U-S. Uh, this great moment of, uh, of redemption on the exact same word I missed. And I, I don't know what happened to the rest of the spelling bee. I, I, the rest of it's blacked out for me. I, I, I probably missed the next word, but I didn't care at all. I got like redemption on the precious word, right? Well, this is, I mean, I, I, just like in Isaiah. <laughs> no, but I see it kind of like this. It's like there's this like that, that same place where you guys were, defe- you, you, you rebelled, you walked away from God, an army came and conquered you. Uh, it just, it, it just you're, you felt like the world had come to an end. You felt like God had abandoned you. Remember that time, that, that place? I'm gonna choose that place to honor later. And I'm gonna send uh, this, this future king to come and honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea. And then in verse six, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. This is a little bit of an odd statement. He's gonna be a baby, and we're gonna put him in charge. But see, they've had a lot of disappointment with government, right? They've had a lot of disappointment with their kings. Even though God had warned them, they demanded, we want a king, we want a king. And then, yes, the king overly taxed them. The king uh, gathered up all the horses and uh, all the gold, and uh, the king uh, led them astray, and it had suffering. They, they had a lot of disappointment with the government. I thought I'd have an amen from someone. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and they said, there's gonna be this child and uh, the government's going to be on his shoulders. He's going to actually have the power there. And he's going to have these names. And these names, if you, if you think about the Old Testament, I think these names really stand out. This child who's going to be born is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, if you know anything about the the Israelites, the one thing that stood out to them, they were monotheists. They believe in one 
God. That was the major contrast religiously between them and everyone around them. One God. And yet, there's this child being born that's going to be called Mighty God. What a statement. Everlasting Father. And then this word Prince of Peace, which is our focus for today. Prince of Peace. And the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. I think about in this, this story, this, this story of, uh, in this moment in history, oh, they don't have peace because they've not had righteous, good governance or any kind of protector to protect them or to administer the peace. And yet there's going to be this time. He's looking forward in the future, what we believe happens 700 years in the future at the birth of Jesus. And say so he'll be called the Prince of Peace. Now this is a word that is constantly associated with Jesus, particularly we see at his birth. I'll give you some examples. Luke chapter 2, 13 to 15. This is at the birth of Christ. The angels sing a song, and specifically they mention peace in their song. So suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah sang over the birth of his son, who was, became known as John the Baptist. And this was the song. He says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. This is John the Baptist would be the prophet. And you will go before the Lord and prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. So the song that Zechariah sings over the birth of his son, John the Baptist, is you're gonna prepare the way for the Lord and the Lord will come and he will instruct our feet to walk in the path of peace. He's gonna teach us how to become people of peace. You prepare the way for the one who's going to make us into peacemakers. Then we have uh, when Jesus grows up and is baptized and becomes, uh, starts his ministry, uh, his most famous teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, found beginning in Matthew 5, he says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, This theme of peace, it's just sort of interwoven with the, the longings for Jesus hundreds of years before. It's sung over him at his birth, and it comes out of his lips in his most famous teaching, blessed are the peacemakers. So he's the prince of peace. He's the source of peace. He's the one who makes peace. He's the, the one who guides us and teaches our feet to walk the path of peace and, peace and causes us to become peacemakers. Now the word for peace in the Old Testament that Isaiah speaks of in the scripture that we read at the beginning is shalom. Now this word is super, super important to understand. Uh, it signifies um, a sense of well-being and harmony both within and without. So the, wi- the within and without is important. Sometimes we think of the word peace as, a, as um, like an inner peace. 
Other times we use the word uh, peace to refer to, say, say, a ceasefire, an absence of war. Shalom would include both of those, an inner sense of well-being and an outer absence of conflict. But it also signifies the presence of other things, uh, the presence of the things which are associated with God, the things of, of, well, of well-being, of, of, of harmony between people, completeness, wholeness, peace, health, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, fullness, rest, harmony. The absence of agitation or discord, as well as a state of calm, without anxiety or stress. That song that you sing, it is well with my soul, would be shalom. It is well with the community, would be shalom. My neighborhood and my family and my, my world is doing well and loving one another and treating each other with justice and fairness. That would be shalom. I want to show you a... Uh, uh, a little sort of instructional video on shalom that teaches the concept better in three minutes than I can do in 30 minutes. Uh, so let's, uh, let's roll that now. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. 
And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. That's from the Bible Project. Super helpful uh, to trace this theme uh, of shalom. Uh, I've heard it said in, in many places. I first heard it from a Martin Luther King sermon uh, that man will never be at peace with man until man is at peace with himself. Man will never be at peace with himself until he's at peace with God. Jesus is the great peacemaker, the shalom maker that in his own, in his own body and blood brings union or completeness to the relationship between us and God and gives us this peace with God, reconciles us even within ourselves and allows us to become people of peace to one another. So I'd like to just kind of conclude this study by thinking with you about how we could be the recipients of this peace and then become the peacemakers that Jesus longs for us to be? How do we become shalom makers in our world? I'm gonna give you three sort of different kinds of situations. Scenario one is uh, when a wrong is done to us. Well, first of all, anytime we wanna make shalom, what we ask is, uh, you know, uh, where is, where is the shalom broken? And then we just try and see if there's any way we can throw ourselves into the situation in a way that would actually bring greater peace. So the first situation I wanna ask is, what about when the wrong is done to us? Someone has done something wrong to us in some way, and it, that is the, the, the thing that is the breaking of shalom. Uh, a friend of mine told me a story about a neighbor that he used to have that really did not like him. And he could never figure out where did this, uh, where this dislike come from. Uh, and and it, it got so bad that the neighbor set up um, cameras to, uh, f on the side of his house. They're next to our neighbors. Cameras on the side of his house facing towards his house. And floodlights that would come on. And uh, even one of the cameras uh, was up high in the second story peering down into his backyard. It's kind of creepy, right? And there was a sign, a big sign that said, uh, warning, this, era, this uh, house is under surveillance. Do not trespass. It's a really foreboding sign. But it wasn't facing the street. It was on the tree on the property line facing this guy, my friend, right? And... Uh, my friend was just beside himself. He could not figure out where this come from. Now, who knows where it came from? Maybe there was some kind of prejudice. Uh, you know, these guys came from different walks of life and were from different uh, racial groups. Now, who knows? This guy didn't claim that, but, you know, you just kind of wonder, where, where, did this, where did this sort of come from? He didn't treat other neighbors like this. But not knowing where it comes from... Uh, 
this friend of mine just sought to like, how do I, how do I try to make peace with this person? And he would just try to do little things like, you know, roll the guy's you know, trash cans up for him, uh, offer to, can I, can I blow off your driveway? Is there, is there some way that I can serve you? You know, give him a little gift at Christmas time. And, and as, I, as he was sharing with me this, it, it reminded me of some scriptures from Jesus. Again, back on that Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of a shalom maker, that if a neighbor treats us poorly and for whatever reason gets, under, gets in their head that we're the enemy, we don't strike back. We don't return uh, evil for evil. We love them back and just uh, maintain that posture of love in the face of wrong. That's one way that we become shalom makers uh, in this world. There's also another situation in which we're not necessarily part of, we're not the ones wrong, but maybe we observe a wrong. What about when we observe uh, the breaking of shalom? Someone has maybe treated someone else badly. In this case, perhaps a different neighbor sees what's happening between these two and would want to intervene. Well, this is, this is where I want to throw a scripture out which is kind of confusing on this topic. It's going to feel like, a real kind of wrench being thrown in the gears of everything else that I have said about Jesus bringing peace. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Jesus said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. That's exactly what I've been supposing. Okay. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? Isn't that confusing? Like everything else, including all the peacemaking scriptures of, uh, you know, that from Jesus and all the times in which he is giving peace, what is happening in this passage? The best that I can tell, you can kind of look at the life of Jesus and you can kind of figure this out, which is there's times in which Jesus disturbs a false peace on the way to a true shalom. There's all kinds of moments in which Jesus is accused of being a disturber of the peace, right? There's a moment where there's a man who's possessed by demons and he sends them out into these pigs that go run to a lake and, and there's a man who's rescued from demonic oppression and the people come and they ask Jesus, could you please leave our community because you're disturbing the peace, right? We don't want this. There's other times in which uh, the, the, the temple, the, the, all the, the, the marketplace that's happening inside the temple grounds and Jesus comes in and says, get out of here, oh my gosh, you're, you're messing this up. My, my house, my, my father's house is to be used as a house of prayer. And he overturns the tables and he drives out the animals and kicks everybody out to restore it to be a place of prayer. Well, uh, that really angered a lot of people. They felt that he was disturbing their peace. There's moments in which he calls out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. There's moments in which he is challenging uh, these um, uh, racial barriers that, oh, you're not supposed to speak to Samaritans, or even gender barriers. Oh, you don't speak to the woman at the well. And he's challenging some of these, breaking down the walls that exist between people, and that could be regarded as a disturbing of the peace. 
But Jesus sometimes, in order to bring true shalom, in order to really truly love people, sometimes he has to rock the boat. And that can be unsettling for many people. Sometimes we, as followers of Jesus, might be called to do the same. We might be called to, on behalf of someone who is suffering some kind of unfairness, to intervene and challenge the existing behaviors. Uh, some of the students, if you, if you see at school that, that some one particular student is being ostracized by a group of people, and they're all fine with it, and they're all happy, and they all feel peaceful, uh, but this one person is devastated, you might be called upon to challenge that and say, it's not right, you need to treat this person Better. Same thing can happen in work or in a neighborhood. Sometimes a false peace is this has to be disturbed en route to an authentic peace. Situation three when I am the one who has done the wrong. Sometimes it's us, <laughs> sometimes we're the ones that are breaking the shalom with a harsh word, an insensitive action, hatred or bigotry or whatever the thing in us. Are we just having a real stressful day and we snap? Sometimes we're the ones that do the wrong. And Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, teaches us this in Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're in the temple and you're presenting your gift to God, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. And so think about, the, think about the picture there. You, you're there because you feel that you've done something wrong to God and you wanna make peace with God and so you, you kinda of come with your offering to you're gonna give God as an act of worship and you're standing in line waiting for your turn and then you get to the altar and you're about to kinda of give your offering to God and then you realize, oh my gosh, you know? Joe's mad at me for something I did two weeks ago. He's saying, literally, you're supposed to like just, oh, hey, I'll be right back. You just, you put, uh, just, just, just hold, hold it. Can you, can you watch my stuff for me? I'll be right back. And you, run, you just run out of the temple, run down the street, go find Joe and make peace. Joe, if, you're, if there's a Joe here, I'm just as an example. Um, and you make peace with Joe, uh, apologize for whatever you've done, and then you can come back. And, and, and then that's how urgent it is to make peace. It's because the times that I have the most power to repair shalom are the times in which I'm the one who's broken it. The power of an apology, a really good apology, never ceases to amaze me. We who would be followers of Jesus and the Prince of Peace, we who are guided and instructed in the path of peace, we who would wanna be blessed peacemakers called the children of God, this is what we do when we are the ones who've broken shalom. We go to the person and we say, hey, I am so sorry. This thing has come to my mind that I did or that I said and I messed up. It wasn't right. You didn't deserve that. I am so sorry. And I want you to know I'm, I'm gonna try real hard not to do that again. 
because you deserve better. When you do that in a situation where we're the ones who've done wrong, it repairs shalom. It repairs the, com- the completeness in our community. It restores inner shalom of what's happening inside of us. It, 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 it weaves together the community. It builds shalom. And there's too much right now in our society, there's too much ripping apart of shalom. There's too much accusations at each other. There's too much division between we and they. Are you, are you with they or are you with we? Which team, which side are you on? There's too much categorizing of you're a part of that group, you're a part of that group, and, and then bombs being thrown between sides. We're to be part of the interweaving of society through acts of love, acts of grace, acts of apology, acts of intervention, whatever we can do to bring true shalom to the community in the name of Christ. So I want to give you a challenge this week. Uh, the, the series is called The Gifts, and we're thinking about the gifts that come to us in Christ of hope, peace, joy, and love. And specifically this year, we're thinking about how Christ forms these things in us and causes us to become gifts to our community. So the question is, how can you become the gift of peace to your community? And you can do that in any way that kind of comes to your mind, whatever God puts in your heart. But I think for a lot of us, the most easy, practical, low-hanging fruit is I want to challenge you this week to find someone to apologize to, okay? Find someone that you have wronged, that you've been short with, that you've mistreated or, or neglected, and say, you know what, and, and just name it and own it and apologize and express your love and concern for them. Now, if you can't think of anyone, don't, don't do something bad in order to apologize for something. <laughs> just ask, your, ask a family member or friend, can you think of anything I should apologize for? They'll tell you. <laughs> They've got a whole list. If you could do that this week, then you will be a peacemaker. Now, hear this uh, benediction, this blessing. You can receive it. Uh, these are from the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. God bless you. <laughs>